This isn't exactly meant to be funny, but have any of you guys ever tried surfing before? Yeah, a few, you can actually raise your hands. I want to see, like, okay, yeah. I've tried it a few times. Um, if you watched me at last beach day, <laughs> um, Billy was better than me. Uh, <laughs> um, and if you come to the next beach day this upcoming year, you'll see me try again and see what happens. So I'm not the best surfer. I, I am a Californian, but I did not grow up in the ocean. I grew up in the farm country, right? So I, so I grew up loving surfing and the concept of surfing, but never really got the hang of it necessarily. Now, I do know a few things about surfing. So if you've never surfed before, have no fear. I'm going to give you a quick instruction as my instructor taught me the first time I ever learned how to surf. The first thing you have to do to surf is you have to go into the ocean. Now, that's super important, okay? It's super important. You have to be in the ocean to surf. If you are not in water, surfing becomes very difficult, okay? At least that kind of surfing. Maybe there's other kind of surfing. It's like skimboarding. That's not really surfing though, right? So, you have to be in the water. See, being near a beach, eating some shaved ice doesn't make you a surfer, even if you have the surfboard right next to you, right? You have to pick up a board, you have to leave the safety of the beach, and you have to go into the water. But even that doesn't necessarily make you a surfer. You can go out on a surfboard and you can splash around um, in the ocean and never actually surf either. Why? Because you have to paddle out, right? You have to paddle out to where the surf breaks. So you have to go out that far kind of scary out there. But if you never pop up on the surfboard, you still have never surfed. So you can even go to the point of the break and not surf. You have to wait for the wave to come and then you have to pop up at the proper moment. But even that is not fully surfing. That's standing up or at least attempting because you can do that. I mean, I can do that. And then you can just fall right over because you need to balance, right? You need to have balance. So you keep your balance so that you can actually surf for longer than just standing up and falling right back into the ocean and watching if the surfboard hits you in the head, right? So we can't surf without being active, right? You have to do something to surf. You have to be intentional. You have to be disciplined. You have to be aware of the moment you are in. It matters if you're going to try to surf. Now, you can be all those things, but if the waters are flat, then your level of commitment, intentionality, and discipline are largely irrelevant, right? If there are no waves, you can't surf. So you can have the best effort. You can have the best technique. You have the best skills. You can have the best determination. But if there isn't a wave, you can't surf. Now tonight, we're gonna start a unique series in the life of our church. It's called Revive Us. Oh yeah, that's, that's, that's the graphic for it. Jesus said in John chapter four that we are called to abide in him and he in us and we will bear much fruit. That we will experience his life. And he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He uses the imagery of a branch and a vine. And I'm sure if you've been around here, you hear me talk about this passage a lot, but it matters so much. And I forget this so easily. We have to remember that he is the branch and we are the vine. Vines cannot produce grapes on their own volition. They can't just like squeeze really hard in their little vineness and all of a sudden a a grape pops out, right? No, that's not the way it works. It has to be connected to the life-giving branch. A branch disconnected from the vine is not alive and it can't do much of anything 
except for wither, which is when Jesus says, it's really not good for anything, so it gets thrown into the fire. See, we can want to quote unquote be better and maybe you are more disciplined than I and you're able to be better or somebody else is able to be better than you for a little bit more time or whatever. But see, this isn't what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about behavior modification, just being a little bit better. What we're talking about is experiencing God's own life, producing God's own fruit. In other words, to be revived. Now, maybe on our own, we can generate some short-term behavior modification, but unless you find yourself to be Elsa of Arendelle or the Scarlet Witch of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you don't have the ability to spontaneously generate life on your own. Sorry, I can't do it, you can't, they can. They're pretty awesome, right? See, to be revived is to literally experience God's work of bringing to life what has been dead. See, to be revived is to pay attention, to desire, and to experience God's movement in our midst. Most of us who follow Jesus, if we were given the two options, do you want to experience God's life or do you want to like not? You'd probably go, yeah, I'll experience God's life. Like that sounds like the better of those two options. But here's the wrestle. Here, for the last couple of months that we've been kind of thinking through this series and the concept, here's what I have been wrestling with. A simple question. Am I willing to leave the safety of the beach to put myself onto the waters, to posture myself, to experience God's work in my life and through my life? See, like surfing, life isn't something that we can generate on our own terms. We can't create waves. We can't generate life. We can't force God into submission and make him do what we want him to do. He isn't a genie. He doesn't work that way. But we also can't use the excuse, well, if God wants to do something in me, then he's going to have to figure it out. I'm just going to chill on the beach eating some shaved ice. See, when we are wanting God to do something in us, but we're not willing to put ourselves in a position to receive it. That is chilling on the beach, waiting until magically a surfboard appears under us and all of a sudden we're riding a wave. See, we are called to be active participants in God's work. And we are told to seek his movement in us and through us. I love the way Bill Bright, who is founder of Crew, was once asked by some college students how to be a part of a revival. I love this quote. He said, if you want to be a part of a revival, what you do is you lock yourself into your prayer closet. You draw a circle around you and you ask God to begin a revival within the circle. See, when we think of even the word revive, when you saw that maybe if you grew, around, grew up around the church, you might've immediately thought of, oh, like a revival thing. Is that what we're up to? Like revival stuff. But you see, revival is often focused around movement and energy. And this isn't taken on anything that anyone else has ever done on, in the history of revival talk. But this is about something slightly different, something that leads to revival, something that Bill Bright was getting at in this concept, in this quote, is what he is getting at is what we, what those students meant is how do we get to be a part of something epic and some movement that is filled with energy and combustion? And what he said is not hurry up, 
but slow down. Draw near, sit down. That's a lot harder. I don't know about you, that's super hard for me. See, when we think of reviving our minds, we go straight to some major work defined by energy and movement known as revival. But it's, but to be revived, it starts with stillness, repentance, and abiding with Jesus. Now, if you follow Jesus, I'm gonna go ahead and assume that, again, you would vote yes, that you'd prefer to see God move in you and through you. But my question for all of us, again, is will you? Will I allow ourselves to be postured onto the water so that whenever the wind blows, however the wind blows, we go like this. God, move me. I'm yours. Use me. Because that sounds really sweet, but when you really think about it, that's terrifying, right? Now, each culture has its own barriers to experiencing intimacy with Jesus. And in our modern Western culture, I would argue one of the greatest barriers for us in our cultural moment lies in our ability to live distracted. We either, we either work hard or we play hard. We fill up every minute with working harder and more. And we fill up all the rest of the minutes with doing more to entertain ourselves. I resonate with a, a book title that I read. It's a, a relatively old book now from the 80s, I think, but it's called Entertaining Ourselves to Death. Like, isn't that us? We fill up every minute. I fill up every minute with content, podcasts, movies, shows, musicals, um, sports, music. We fear boredom as if it's a plague. We want God, but on our own terms and when he fits into our schedule and only when there isn't something better on tonight. When we've streamed all the shows, right? Through the internet, we have access to limitless knowledge, but the little time, but have little time to discover the wisdom that comes from our creator and the scriptures. We have so many in our American moment, we have so many personal freedoms in this country, but we cannot use those to have a conversation with somebody that we disagree with, let alone experience and demonstrate God's love to our brothers and sisters that we disagree with. Yo, what is that saying about the condition of our hearts? What is that saying about the life that we are living? What is that saying about our abiding with Jesus, our intimacy with Jesus? So as we begin this series, what does the Bible say about God's own life, about reviving, and how can we position ourselves to experience it? So we're gonna be in Genesis chapter two, verse seven. Tonight, it's gonna be a little bit different. I'm gonna be like hop, skipping, and jumping around the Bible, going from Genesis all the way through Acts. So um, I'm probably not gonna give a ton of time for you to skip there uh, because we're gonna hit a few different spots along our journey. But Genesis chapter two, verse seven, this might not be a passage you're familiar with when it comes to thinking about revival. But what I was thinking about, what I believe God was leading me towards was revive means to re-life, literally, right? In Latin, revive, re-life, to be re-energized, re-animated into life. Re-prefix always means again, right? Life again. So if we wanna be revived, then when did we first get life? We actually have that moment, Genesis chapter two, verse seven in the Genesis account. 
Verse seven, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. That prefix re means that this thing has happened before and here we discover the moment when life truly occurred for humanity. In this moment, the human receives the breath of life. Now I want this image to be stamped in your mind, probably throughout this entire series and beyond. When you think of being revived, think of that moment when the God of the universe breathed into mankind. See, according to the Genesis account, all living creatures were crafted by God. He spoke and they were, but only the humans were given his breath. What makes this so important is this allows us to receive an image to ground us when we think about human beings being made in his own image that he crafted us from the dust and then he breathed. There's a personal touch here. We have received his breath, but also notice that the human being was not a human before God's breath. This is the moment when humanity receives life. It's been said that the Westminster Catechism, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is the genesis of that moment. This is when we started our whole thing called life. To walk in step with him and in step with one another. To be fruitful and to multiply the number of image bearing creations who would steward that breath of life throughout the planet. But then humanity chooses to use that same breath to curse God, to desire a path away from the creator. What was promised by God was that if the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, were to rebel against him, to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would die. Now think about what that means in context of the breath of life. The breath of life was meant to be permanent, eternal, constant, but now it's corrupted. But now it's simply borrowed. And every attempt that we make to get back to God fails because the stench of death continues to hover over humanity. For every generation of humans or of God's people, the Israelites that followed after the way of God, the next six would rebel. And for those who, who, had, who had just had an inkling of, I want that again. I want to experience that intimacy. I want to experience that life. Is it any wonder why the prophets and the psalmists continually go back to revival language, real life language? Um, Isaiah 57. Here's how Isaiah 57 verse 15 writes it. For thus says the Lord who is on high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says this, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. So he says, that's where I am. If you want my presence, it is in high and holy places. It is set apart from all the brokenness of this world. But not only that, it is with those who are of contrite and lowly spirits. In other words, the humble and the meek. Those who realize their desperate need for him. Get this though, to revive the spirit of the lowly to revive the heart of the contrite. Isn't that beautiful? That's what God's about. He wants to bring about life to those who realize their need for him. Psalm 86 writes it this way. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in 
you. Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? What's the purpose of us being realized? That we would rejoice in God, that we would enjoy his presence. It's what we were created for. Habakkuk 3, verse 2. This is in the middle of Habakkuk's story is super depressing and just one of complete desperation for God. Habakkuk is just seeing his nation get like stomped on because of their rebellion against God. So hear this desperate plea. Oh Lord, I have heard the report of you in your work. Oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. Lord, would you bring this nation back to life? You can sense, and this is just like the shortest blip of some of these prophecies in some of these moments. But every time a prophet would come, their role as prophets were to come to the people on behalf of God and to bring a message to point them away from the path of destruction of death and move them towards God's movement of new life so that they would continue to see the breath of life that they borrow from God, but instead to use that breath to move closer and closer to death over and over and over again. And then finally, as the Old Testament is starting to draw to a close in the book of Joel, Chapter two, flip there. Chapter two, verse 28 through 29. This prophecy. Listen to this and kind of like mark this one in your head. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And even on the male and the female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. That is a movement of re-life. Could you imagine the anticipation when Joel got that prophecy? When is that coming? And for 600 years after that moment, Nothing. Nothing, nothing. 600 years, no movement until this backwoods rabbi from Nazareth named Jesus begins to walk place to place proclaiming a new kingdom, a kingdom of God, a kingdom of life, light, and flourishing. And he said it was on its way here. He even made these statements that were so baffling to just about everyone he talked to. He once was talking to this guy, this Pharisee named Nicodemus in John chapter three. And as they're, they're hanging out, Nicodemus is super skeptical, but he's asking Jesus some honest questions, some hard questions. And he's saying, what, is, what do I need to do if I wanna be a part of this kingdom you're talking about? And Jesus says, you must be born again. Now, I know you've heard that phrase a time or two, right? It's almost like a political statement now. But in that we lose all of the beauty of what it's meant to say. What it's meant to do is confuse the heck out of you in reality. How do you get born again? And that's what Nicodemus says to them. How do I get born again? Do I, like, do people need to like crawl back up into the womb and be birthed again? Like, I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. That's the point. And Jesus says, oh, you're missing the point. Everyone is born of the flesh. But what I'm talking about is being born of the spirit revived 
to be brought to life a second time. What he's getting at is that each and every one of us are born into planet death. We are born with sinful tendencies. We are born into the brokenness of this world. We are born spiritually dead. But what Jesus is saying is that in me, you can be revived. You can be brought back to life. And you can experience that life, not on a one-time thing, not as like an insurance policy that you get to go to heaven, but that each and every day you could experience life and intimacy with him. If your imagination goes in like, then, okay, I need to work harder, do more, earn more. This is the exact concept that Jesus directly contradicts. We have two examples from Jesus' life that really contradict that concept. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is at the home of two of his friends, Mary and Martha. You may have heard the story before. But he is sitting down with his buddies and he is teaching and they're all eating and having a good time. And Martha is doing the job of the most spectacular of hosts. She is filling up everyone's cups. She is making sure everyone is well fed. She is making sure the house is picked up. She is taking care of everything. But where's her sister? She's chilling out with Jesus. She says that she is at his feet listening. And Martha's, she's beside herself, right? Wouldn't you? Think about it. You're doing all the hard work and here your sister is doing nothing. Like, what is she doing? Why is she just listening to him? And so Martha pulls a move and goes to the son of God and rats out her own sister, right? And she's like, Jesus, tell her to help out. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Where was Mary? At Jesus' feet. Going back to the surfing analogy, she had postured herself onto the ocean, prepared to experience God's life. She wasn't about, she wasn't attempting to do more to earn anything from Jesus. She was simply gonna draw near to him. See, by sitting at the feet of Jesus, her hope was to experience his own life. And this pairs well with that passage I mentioned earlier from John chapter four about abiding. Apart from me, you can do, say it with me, nothing. 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 Jesus says, I'm the branch, you are the vine. Isn't that crazy? It's not that like I, Danny, am the branch and you all are the vine. No, we are all branches and Jesus is the vine. We connect to him. We receive life not from one another, not from an idol, not from a podcaster, not from anyone except for Jesus. He is the only one who promises true life and can deliver it. Anyone can start a podcast. Only Jesus died on a cross, raised from the grave so that we could have that life. Now, how should this read into even classic passages that you know, like John 3, 16 and 17? I'll read this again, but now think of it in terms of the context of life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal, what is that word? Life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
life. 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 That's what Jesus came to bring about. Did Jesus come to save our souls? Yes. But that's not all of it. That's only one facet of the diamond of what he worked on the cross and in the resurrection. See, he came to give image image bearers, those entrusted with the breath of life, the opportunity to once again truly live. This is what Jesus ushered in on the cross. The son of God paying our debt of death so that we could be revived with his gift of life. God's desire was always to bring his image bearers back to life. And we see that in the life of the early church early on that this new life begins to take place. See, remember Jesus spent three years with his disciples, training them, equipping them. And at the end of their, at the end of their internship, they were still terrible in every which way. And Jesus is preparing to send them out, but he says, do not go out on your own. Wait until the spirit comes, until the counselor comes, and then I have a job for you. So in Acts chapter two, we pick up on that. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The breath of life began to spread. The Spirit of God began to move. The giver of the breath of life began to move. Just, and you see the the parallels from Joel's prophecy 600 years before, the spirit of God was on his people and his power was radiating through the life of the early church. And it's not because they were awesome. We know that. Like we have the gospels to realize how not awesome the disciples were on their own. But it only speaks to the power of the Holy Spirit, his mighty work in us and through us and what he wants to do in us and through us. But we don't have access to it. We don't tap into that when we are truing it on our own terms, when we are surfing on our own way, when we're trying to generate waves on our own, or when we're chilling on the beach, pretending that it's all gonna work out one day. No, we are called to be active participants. Now, there are a few things I I don't want you to think. That somehow that this breath of life is somehow disconnected from the movement of revival. That when the spirit of God moves in the church to bring about new life in incredible ways, they're absolutely connected. But again, remember what we're talking about with the concept of being revived is not about doing more. It's about simply posturing ourselves. It's about simply going at the feet of Jesus, drawing near to him, Imagining that we are the vine and he really is the branch. The surf metaphor, going on the ocean, preparing for the wave. Now, I also don't, want, don't know if you are tempted to hear this and think, well, maybe that's just an exaggeration. Um, that, like that, maybe that's just like hyperbole or maybe that was only back then. But know this, for the last 2,000 years of the history of the church, through all of the brokenness, the spirit of God has continued to move. And so easily we can beat up on the history of the church. A lot of it is very, very well-deserved. But yet the spirit of God continues to use the church. I, I, I had to read a book, a few books in, uh, back in seminary on 
the movements of the spirit throughout the history of the, the church. And some of my favorites, and maybe at some points in the series, I'll include a story or two, but these are like a quick highlight reel. In the, in the final days of the Roman Empire, St. Augustine had the opportunity to witness a great movement of the spirit throughout the place of Hippo and throughout the Roman Empire in the midst of the turmoil. In the 1300s, Wycliffe was a part of the pre-Reformational revival as he translated the scriptures into common language for the first time. In the Reformation, it began a little over 500 years ago in 1517. It was, it was revolutionary as the Spirit of God evoked in people the ability to understand the scriptures on their own for the first time. The Great Awakening in the 1700s, that happened right here in the American colonies. My, one of my favorite revivals, y'all, this one's so good. The Layman's Prayer Revival of Wall Street that began in 1857. It was insane. Look it up. In 1904, the Welsh Revival. It began in Wales, but here's what's so cool. That same revival ended up springboarding to Los Angeles, to Azusa Street, starting the Azusa Street Revival. And what's crazy about that, it, then it went to LA, then it springboarded to Korea. And it is still reverberating throughout the entire Korean Peninsula today. And that's from 1904, y'all. In 1960s, the Jesus People Revival began in the Americas and it spread across the globe. And even more recently, right now, in areas of persecution like China and Iran, the word of God is moving and the spirit of God is revealing himself to people in hard to reach people groups and unreached spaces in the midst of persecution when death is on the line. That's what the spirit's up to y'all. He's up to it today. That's what we are a part of. I just literally went from the beginning of humanity to today, okay? God desires that we as his people would experience his life and not just one time. See, the thing about each of those revivals, they're so beautifully different from one another. They're spanning generations, cultures, generations, historical moments, socioeconomic classes. Some of them have influential evangelists that are connected to them. Most of them have no famous Christians attached. But here's the deal. None of them occurred as the people of God waited on the beach and just hoped that God would one day do something. Instead, the people of God throughout the generations, throughout cultures, throughout moments in time, simply postured themselves on their boards, ready to receive whatever God was gonna bring their way. And then God does what he does. See, reviving is not focused on doing for Jesus. It is focused on resting in Jesus. It comes from catching your breath at his feet. It's not about our cult. See, here's the thing. Not much about our culture is conducive about being revived or catching our breath, right? We live in a frenetic pace, a frenetic culture. I was thinking about this week and the closest thing that I, I could think of in our culture that has any semblance of this might be something like self-care. But here's the deal. Even with the idea of self-care, is it falls short of one of the greatest parts of Hallmark of experiencing new life in Jesus, which is being humble and contrite, realizing and repenting before a holy God. That's not exactly what is Instagrammable or Pinteresty, right? Like that's not what we see. But here's the deal. We live busier and busier and busier. 
I was thinking about, you know, when you go to the Haunted Mansion and you go into the, the stretch portrait gallery and, uh, and, and, and they tell you, everyone, go to the dead center of the room and filling up all available breathing space. Like that idea, that's how my mind works. <laughs> Anybody else? Like every thought, my schedule, my life, my mind, everything has to be so jam-packed all the time. Maybe that resonates with you. But the solution is not just figuring out margin. It's not just about taking time to rest. Although both of those, don't mishear me, both of those are vitally important. What do we do with that time? What do we do with that margin? What do we do with that space? What do we do with that rest? Because what this is about is drawing near to Jesus. And engaging in spiritual rhythms, prayer, meditating on scripture, studying the scriptures, fasting, Sabbathing goes on. But also realizing that none of these things force his hand. But what it does do is it puts us on the ocean with him to experience his movement in us and through us. See, just as the, each of those great moments of revival over the last 2,000 years have been so radically different from one another, each of us are unique from one another. So it would be foolish for anyone to say, here are three things that you must do. And then if you do these three things this exact way, then you, here's the outcome from God that you can be promised. It doesn't work that way. It's gonna be unique and different for each and every one of us. And that's good. It's beautiful. It's unique. It speaks to the beautiful diversity that we have even in this room. But here's what I do know. Here's the commonality for all of us. It is going to require that we get off of the comfortable beach with our wonderful shaved ice and we get into the water. Not to do more, but to rest well. Not to prove, but to abide. Not to work, but to posture our lives before him. So here's what I would love to do right now. We're gonna take three minutes. What I would love for us to do is simply begin to posture ourselves before God. And what I'd love for you to, to consider is just as you bow your head, just put your hands open in front of you, just in a posture of surrender before him. And just ask God, begin, God, would you begin to reveal to me, is there things that I need to be surrendering, giving up, stopping, or are there new things that I should be beginning to enter into and engage in so that I would posture myself at your feet? Let's pray. you're here tonight and you are, you don't know what you think about Jesus. You don't know where you stand with him. Know that this is a safe community. And, and, and as I'm talking about all of this stuff, know that this is a community where like our greatest desire is to know Jesus more, to know Jesus more intimately, to abide with him. Not that we are perfect people and that we have it all figured out. So if you have questions or thoughts or you want to wrestle through difficulties and doubts and concerns. Just know that my hope is that this would be a safe community for that. Now, I mentioned this series is called Revive Us, so I wanted to fill you in a little bit more about it. 
See, it's a little bit unique. Typically, if you have been around Mosaic for any length of time or if you're brand new, we, the way we typically operate our teaching schedule is we go through one book at a time and we kind of just take our time going through each book of the Bible. We've been on the same sermon series jokingly for 15 years now. Uh, so uh, we've just continued going through. Sometimes we take breaks for topical series, for holiday series, things like that. But our teaching team felt led towards something a little bit different this summer. A series where we don't exactly even know how long it's going to last. A series born out of each week coming before the Lord as a teaching team going, God, what does your church need to hear about this Sunday? What word, what passage, what topic? Now, this means is that this summer is probably going to feel quite a bit different than our norm. This is not to say that ordinarily we don't care about the leading of the Spirit. We absolutely do. And we just trust that he is operating uh, through his word that he inspired. But what it also means is that it's likely that if you ever attend our Winter Garden campus in the morning and then you come here at night, what you will notice is that our messages for probably the vast majority of the summer are not going to be the same message, probably nearly at all. They will be very different and unique because we're just trusting and asking for each communicator, Lord, what do you have? Now, sometimes it might be the exact same. I don't know because again, we're leaving it up to the Spirit and seeing how he would lead us, direct us, and guide us. Ordinarily, we have a teaching team meeting. This is like super in the weeds now, but just for information purposes. Uh, each Monday morning, we bring all of our research our, about the upcoming topic. We share notes and we learn together. It's super awesome. But we're even changing that rhythm. And we invited the entire staff to the first portion where we're gonna pray together as a staff for an entire hour from 9.30 to 10.30 each Monday for the foreseeable future. And just seek the Lord together and then go about and having meetings and planning and all the other things that happen. And for the teaching team, then we'll go and then we'll go, Lord, what, what did you reveal to us? So that's what we are doing. And that's the uniqueness of what we're gonna be doing this summer. But the question for you is, what, what could this look like for you? Maybe you wanna join us to pray from 9 to 10, 9.30 to 10.30 if you happen to have that hour free in your schedule. Or if you're at break, at work, you take five minutes and you just take time to pray and draw near to Jesus then. See, none of this means that we can somehow force revival out of God. He's not a cosmic Coke machine. We can't, we won't try. But we can become a church that lives more and more on the ocean together, preparing for the next wave. Wherever, whenever God moves, we move. If he doesn't move, we don't wanna move. And I can tell you this, like personally, this is both quite thrilling and terrifying for me. Because I love my comfort. I love my TV shows. I love my busyness. I love my work ethic. I love the frenetic pace that I live in. And it hurts me. It hurts my family. And it hurts my relationship with Jesus. And what I want to experience in my life is more of Jesus in my life. More intimacy with him in my life. I don't want to sit on the beach. What about you? Would you pray with me? What an opportunity that we have to draw near to you. And not because we're doing a series called Revive Us, but because we are your kids and you ask us to draw near to you. So we have this opportunity, no matter what the sermon series is, no matter what local church we're a part of, no matter if we're on vacation, in our work locations, gathering together. We have the opportunity each and every day to draw near to you. Something that would have been unbelievable even 2,000 years ago in the history of humanity. But Lord, through Jesus, the curtain is torn. 
your presence is accessible, not because of us, but because of him. So Lord, I pray that we would rest in that tonight, that we would rest in the sacrifice of Jesus tonight, that we'd rest in his new life tonight, that we would rest at his feet tonight. Lord, would you do a work in me? Would you bring to mind what I need to repent of? Would you bring to mind for each and every one of us what each of us needs to repent of? The things that we are doing or not doing or could be doing or whatever the case is that is stopping us from sitting at your feet. Lord, would you give us the courage to confess that to a friend, to a discipleship mentor, to a disciple? Would you give us the endurance to draw near and stay connected? Lord, I'm excited for what you've got going on this summer in this church. I'm excited to see the fruit that comes. But Lord, it's not our fruit, it's yours. So we beg you for your mighty work in us and through us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.